just like old times up here. Got a new podium to stand on. I guess your carpenter uh, pastor <clears throat> has been busy building and painting, and I, I'm thinking about hiring him on. <clears throat> but uh, thank you. <clears throat> Never mind. We'll just leave it. Reading the New Testament is very much like watching split-screen television. I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. When they split the screen, they'll have a speaker on one side of the screen, and sometimes he'll be talking to somebody maybe in Beijing, China, down there. Incredible ability <clears throat> of our technology now to communicate a world around the world. <clears throat> The New Testament is much like that. You see, there are two universes. There is the universe on one side of the screen that you and I are in right now. We're living it. We're walk, we walk and we talk in that universe. But next to us is another universe, a parallel universe, right next to ours, very close to us, but apart from us. And Jesus had a name for that parallel universe. He called it the kingdom of God. Most of his New Testament sermons and teaching was about the kingdom of God. He wanted all to understand on this side of the screen exactly what was going on on the other side of the screen in the kingdom of God. Most of the parables, you read them, the kingdom of God is like, and then he would give the parable. Most of the New Testament teaching, the Sermon on the Mount is about Citizenship in the kingdom of God. Luke tells us that for 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus spent those 40 days on the earth before his ascension teaching them concerning the kingdom of God. They apparently had a very difficult time understanding it. Sometimes there's what I call a leakage between the two universes. There's an angelic visitor who comes over from the other side and pays a visit on our side of the screen. And <clears throat> then uh, sometimes we're able to see over there into that kingdom. There are Joseph and Daniel who had dreams and visions and saw into that parallel universe. John, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament paid it a visit, came back to talk about it and had difficulty describing it. John, the Apostle, in the New Testament, the book of Revelation is all about his visit, his vision, sights into the kingdom of God. Well, the big breakthrough between the two was the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ when he came from that parallel universe into ours to walk among us. I don't know that... Uh, <clears throat> I have ever experienced anything like what is going on right now in our world. Any more confusion, any more trouble. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But before I do, <clears throat> let me illustrate what I'm talking about here between these two universes. We're, maybe most, maybe all of us here in this building this morning have been baptized. We've been immersed into Christ, into a watery grave. We come up out of that water. And, uh, and what happened? Well, not really much happened at all, really. 
We just were all wet. But on the other side of the universe, in that parallel universe, something wonderful happens. Even though there's no thunder or lightning or earthquake after our baptism, over here in the parallel universe, we are instantly forgiven of all our sins, and we are instantly made candidates for eternal life. That's a wonder that goes on right beside us, in us and through us. We just participated in communion. We took a little piece of unleavened bread, and we sipped a little bit of fruit of the vine. And what happened? Well, there not very much happened, really, was there? There wasn't any earthquake. There was no lightning or thunder. But over on the other side, in that other kingdom, someone was watching. And he saw us participate in that together. And he says, you dutifully and obediently fulfilled my ancient request to be remembered. And you remembered. Now on down the road, one of these days, I will remember you. That's what goes on in these two kingdoms. It's a miraculous reality that we can experience. Now, talk about political and cultural and economic wars. It seems to me like the four horsemen of John's apocalyptic vision in the book of Revelation are running rampant across our planet right now. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, war, famine, disease, pestilence, war, There are more wars going on in our world right now than ever in the history of our world, ever. Disease. COVID-19, do I need to say any more in terms of a global pandemic? The third horseman in the pocket, the second one, famine. Most of the world, most of the world will go to bed tonight hungry. We are insulated against that, most of us in this culture, but most of the world is hungry. War, famine, disease, pestilence. But Jesus, and I thought, how can I live in this kind of a world? What shall I be? And then I thought, you know, Jesus lived in that kind of a world. A world torn by wars, by famine, by religious confusion. He was a Jew, but he was a member of a religion that had Pharisees and Sadducees at war with one another, Essenes and Zealots and Herodians and Sicarii, at least seven divisions in in his own religion. There was a totalitarian government, a totalitarian... um, king who reigned on the throne in Rome, who taxed his people to the point, basically, of bankruptcy. The most powerful religious leaders in the land wanted to silence Jesus. They would like to kill him if they had opportunity. And he carries out his mission, and in three and a half years, amid all of this conflict and confusion, political upheaval and taxation, He unleashed the most powerful lifting force in the history of the universe. 
in three and a half years, right in the middle of all that foment. How can this be? <clears throat> My wife was <clears throat> reading not long ago um, a novel, and in the novel there was a postcard described. And it was a, a, some sort of greeting card of some sort. And it had a picture of a sad dog on the front. And, and underneath it was the writing, Life's disappointments and failures are some of her greatest teachers. And then you open it up and it said, What a stupid system. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? We do some of our best learning in some of the personal crises and heartache and heartbreak that we experience here. <clears throat> James S. Stewart, a very famous Scottish preacher, wrote this in a book titled, Heralds of God. And I think his words were never more appropriate than they are in this very hour. Let me read them. In this enormously, criti enormously critical time, he wrote, human hearts are bombarded with fierce temptations. Old securities wrecked. Preconceptions banished forever. When history itself is being torn in two and no man can predict the shape of things to come, the church needs people who, knowing the world around them and knowing the Christ above them and within, will set the trumpet of the gospel to their lips and proclaim his sovereignty and his all-sufficiency. There is a sad, what I call a sad simplicity in the Gospels when the Gospels describe the death of Jesus like this in John. After that, they had mocked him and scourged him. They led him away to Golgotha, and there they crucified him. Two little tiny verses in the Gospel of John sum up the most momentous event in the history of the world. It all began in the midst of the garden. He was in prayer. He's arrested right in the middle of prayer. How absurd is that? It appeared as though Judas was heading up the event. John tells us how he was in front leading a cohort of Roman soldiers. A cohort is six hundred Roman soldiers, armed to the teeth, ready for war. And behind them are the temple guard, the Jewish guards, and they're armed with clubs. The New Testament Greek for that is like ball bats. We would call them ball bats, and torches, and spears, and swords. And then behind that is the crowd, this horde of people coming into the garden to arrest Jesus. And I picture Judas strutting his way. He never knew a more powerful moment in his life. A guy by the name, an American artist by the name of Warhol, talks about 15 minutes of fame. Andy Warhol, most of us have some experience in our life where something happened to us or we were engaged in some event that might have made the headlines. He calls that our 15 minutes of fame, where we could have made the headlines, and then after that's over, we sink back into oblivion. This was Judas' 15 
minutes of fame. But one thing needs to be noted. Judas had failed to inform the Roman soldiers that his rabbi was not a warlord. He was a pacifist. Jesus never carried a weapon. He never wielded a sword. Why all of this? To arrest him. Talk about overkill. And then what fascinates me is when Jesus says, if I wanted to, I could summon 12 legions of angels in my behest, at my behest. 12 legions of angels would number 72,000 armed angels, angelic or angelic warfare. It wouldn't have been a fair fight, 72,000 against 600. But he didn't do that. And then came the trials. <clears throat> Three Jewish trials, Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. Three Roman trials, Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate, and then he's turned over to the crowd. So he comes before the kangaroo court in the Jewish trial. That night, that trial broke about every Jewish law concerning a trial that could be broken. The trial was at night. That broke a Jewish law. Jesus was denied due process. That broke a Jewish law. Lying witnesses were brought in to testify against him, and some of them were paid. That broke a Jewish law. He was denied defense counsel, breaking a Jewish law. False charges of destroying the temple and blasphemy were brought against him. That broke the Jewish law. His trial was in a private home and not in a legal law court. That broke a Jewish law. And that's only some of them. There were more. Then the three Roman trials. Pilate. And then the charge changes. Well, they've got to get a capital crime now, if they're going to kill him, and so it shifts from blasphemy and temple destruction to treason. That'll get him. But it was all so dishonest. Who was in control? Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, Judas, the Roman soldiers, the high priests? No. Who was in charge? The Apostle Peter makes it clear on the day of Pentecost exactly who was in charge. In the middle of that sermon in Acts 2, the Apostle Peter drives it home with a proposition of his sermon in these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you by mighty works and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, even as you yourselves know, him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you, by the hands of lawless men, did crucify and slay. And then comes that beautiful phrase, but God has raised him from the dead. After the trial, the house of Annas was destroyed. Caiaphas was deposed and died on an island in the Mediterranean. Pilate was exiled and committed suicide. Herod died in exile in Spain. 
Jerusalem would fall 37 years, exactly 37 years after that crucifixion. Only 37 years. Jerusalem would be destroyed by Titus, the Roman general, and the Roman army. And Jesus foresaw that. And <clears throat> it seems as though these guys were not really in control at all. We find out who really was in control all the time. It was God. I think it was about three or four years ago I was to preach a sermon on Palm Sunday. And I ran across a Greek word in the New Testament that I hadn't known was there before. There are two different Greek words in the New Testament for weeping. One is John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. At the grave of Lazarus, he wept. But there's another occasion. And it was Palm Sunday. Jesus had come up from Jericho, and he'd uh, gone over... Uh, from Bethany, it's about a 20-minute walk from Bethany into Jerusalem, and he had begun that walk the Sunday before um, <clears throat> the Passover, and uh, they, were they were throwing palm branches <clears throat> in the way, and they were hailing him as a, as a king, a triumphant king, come to liberate them. And the Bible says, <clears throat> as they were celebrating, he looks up at the city of Jerusalem and he foresees its destruction coming. And the Bible says, he wept. Here is all of this celebration. And Jesus is weeping and he says, no, it's not going to be like you think. You think I came to save the city. The city is going to be destroyed. What? He turned their expectation upside down. And then the Bible says, he wept. Only this time it uses a different Greek word. That word is translated, he sobbed. When he saw the consequences of a city that would reject him, he sobbed. 37 years after the crucifixion, the Roman general came over Mount Scopus and the <clears throat> historian says he saw the city and he didn't want to destroy the temple because it was so beautiful, but his soldiers went right ahead and destroyed the temple. They overturned every stone in the temple and those stones are still standing on that Roman street just below the temple area in Jerusalem. 37 years. One historian has written that the Roman soldiers ran, literally, ran out of room in the city of Jerusalem for crosses on which to crucify those Jewish captives. Some of the very same Jews who had cried, crucify him, now are themselves being crucified on Roman crosses. Is there such a thing as divine justice? I think maybe there may be. My sermon I entitled, <clears throat> The Suffering Prince, uh, I get it from Johnny Hart. I don't know whether you're familiar with him or not. He's no longer living, but he used to run a syndicated comic column. And occasionally he would have a religious one. And he'd catch a lot of criticism whenever he'd do something religious in his cartoons. But this one captured me 
I really, really liked it. I think, <clears throat> let's look at it together. The Suffering Prince. Picture yourself tied to a tree, condemned of the sins of eternity. Then picture a spear parting the air, seeking your heart to end your despair. Suddenly a knight in armor of white stands in the gap betwixt you and its flight. And shedding his armor of God for you, bears the lance that runs him through. His heart has been pierced that yours may beat, and the blood of his corpse washes your feet. Picture yourself in raiment of white, cleansed by the blood of the lifeless night, never to mourn the prince who is down, for he is not lost, it is you who are found. The suffering prince. God Almighty is informing the world of that Friday, on that Friday of a cataclysm. The New Testament seems to have difficulty finding the exact words really to describe this momentous event of the crucifixion of Christ and all that it means for the ages. <clears throat> the heavens blushed. The sun covered its face. The temple veil was split in half. Rocks were cracked and split and opened. Tombs were opened and dead men walked the streets of Jerusalem. The earth quaked and shook beneath their feet. All nature stood horror-stricken as the Son of God expired upon that cursed tree, bearing the derision of the chief priests and the scribes who cried out, Others he saved, himself he cannot save. They had never spoken words more true. Others he saved, but himself he could not save in order to save them. Come down from the cross, Jesus. Do something spectacular. Will the crowds will follow you if you do something spectacular and just come down from the cross and save yourself? It was an echo of the same temptation he'd heard three years before in the garden of temptation in the wilderness. Jump from the pinnacle of the temple. Do something spectacular and the great crowds will fill the cathedrals and churches and follow you. But he knew it was a lie. He had done great works, but they still rejected him. He knew that wasn't the way to do it. Thank God. I have a, a, a description. I think maybe I read this to you before, but it fits here so well. I want to do it again if I've done it before. This was a writer's attempt to describe the indescribable. Words just don't seem big enough sometimes to describe the events in the New Testament. And he has attempted to describe this frustration in these words. He said, architects have strained their power to the utmost and have conceived of no cathedrals great enough for his worship. Painters holding a cargo of wonder in their brushes have made no pictures beautiful enough to depict him. Sculptors searching through all the rock quarries of the earth have found no marble white enough for his brow. Musicians making surging seas of tones subservient to their batons have created no composition sweet enough to sing his hymns of praise. 
orators whose words are like flights of golden arrows reach only to the outskirts of his grandeur. Poets sweeping their thoughts together in poems and dramas measure him but feebly. Writers wielding pens which seem to be fountainheads of Niagara's express only a meager measure of the honor that is due him. I like the words of the poet who wrote, Who shall paint him? Let the sweetest chords that ever trembled on the harps of heaven be discord. Let the chanting seraphim whose anthem is eternity be dumb. For praise and wonder and adoration all melt into mutinous ere they soar to thee. Soul perfection, theme of countless words. Years ago, I preached a sermon in our college chapel on the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I got it wrong. I want to get it right for us today. In that sermon, I saw in Isaac the perfect antitype of Jesus. Isaac, the only begotten son of his father, the son his father loved, the son of promise, who carries on his back the altar wood for the burnt offering, the sacrifice. And on the way, Isaac turns to Father Abraham and asks, Father Abraham, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Now most of your Bibles will translate that this way. The Lord will provide for himself the sacrifice. The word for is not in the Hebrew text. I want to give you the literal Hebrew translation of that verse. The Lord will give, the Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. The Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. And then we know, just as uh, he was ready to sacrifice Isaac in a Holocaust offering. It's a burnt offering. The Hebrew word for that is holos. It's the word we get, holocaust. Have you ever heard of the holocaust? Six million Jews consider themselves a burnt offering, burned up in the furnaces of Adolf Hitler in World War II, a holocaust offering. Isaac was to be one of those holocaust offerings. But his hand has stayed in the air, Abraham's, And Isaac is spared. His bonds are cut and he is set free. You and a ram, a ram caught in the thicket is taken and replaces Isaac and is sacrificed on the altar. You and I are Isaac. Jesus Christ is that ram. For you and me, there's a substitute. But he's the ram, a ram. Why a ram? A ram was much more expensive than a lamb. And God wanted Israel to know sin is very costly. One man wrote, sin takes you further than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and costs you more than you wanted to pay. There were actually two sacrifices on that occasion. 
Abraham offers his son and Isaac offers himself. And then God says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know, Abraham, you fear God. But there's one little phrase in that text that is so beautiful, I can't let it go by. And that's when Abraham turns to his two servants and he says, we will go over yonder and make the sacrifice and we will return to you. How is he going to do that? Sacrifice his son and he's going to return with his son? Folks, that's resurrection theology. He believed in the resurrection that God could raise the dead. One man has described resurrection in the Old Testament as flashes of lightning against a midnight sky. There are three hopeless faces I want us to glance at in the New Testament that move from the um, crucifixion to the resurrection. They go from the shadow of death into the sunlight of hope and resurrection. Mary is one. Thomas, the doubter, is another. That's not necessarily a bad name. Thomas gave me a bad name in a a moment there. And then the two uh, Emmaus pilgrims. But first of all, there is Mary in the garden weeping. The other ladies have gone. The disciples have gone. And she's weeping. Why is she weeping? Well, thinking him to be the gardener, she says, well, I'm weeping because they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have taken him. And he simply says, Mary. And she turns and exclaims, Rabboni, my teacher, which is to say, master. And then there's Thomas. Thomas says, well, unless I see him, And unless I put my hand in the wounds, I've got to see him and I've got to touch him. Unless he passes all the scientific verification, I will not believe. And then when Jesus appears, it's Thomas who exclaims, my Lord and my God, my Elohim and my Yahweh. But my favorite story in the New Testament is Luke's story in Luke 24. It's those two pilgrims who have been in Jerusalem for the Passover and now are headed back home to Emmaus. And uh, as they're traveling along, uh, Jesus joins them. And uh, he asks them, um, one of them was uh, Cleopas. They stood, he said, uh, what are you discussing as you walk along together along the road? What are you discussing? Well, I think he knew what they were talking about. What are you discussing? Well, they stood still, their faces downcast, countenance fallen. One of them named Cleopas asked him, this is the most ironic question in the Bible. Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus says, what things? He asked, oh, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, which is exactly what he did, but they didn't know it. And then it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Oh, you know what that means? You start with Moses. You know where you start? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the major prophets, the four major prophets, the 12 minor prophets. He took them through the entire Old Testament, showing them how on page after page, it's all about him. It's all about him. And then, well, first, what I give for a copy of that sermon. What a sermon. I'd like to preach that one. The most ironic question in the Bible, like this. They thought they knew. They didn't know what had been going on in Jerusalem. They thought he didn't know, but he did know. In God's great universe, he was the only one who knew what had been going on in Jerusalem. Nobody else knew. Nobody understood. Those Romans didn't know. The Jewish priests didn't know. His own family didn't know. His apostles didn't know. Nobody else knew. He knew. They sure didn't know. And he knew they didn't know. And he knew they thought they did know. The most ironic question in the Bible. J.R. Tolkien describes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as God's eucatastrophe. You won't find that word in the dictionary. It's a, <clears throat> a catastrophic blessing. A eucatastrophe. Catastrophic blessing. And <clears throat> he says, uh, it's very much, he's probably one of the greatest folklore writers of our time. He's uh, written uh, novels <clears throat> that have been made into movies. Um, <clears throat> the, Lord, the Lord of the Rings uh, are an example of his artistry with folklore. Folklore. And <clears throat> he says it's like this. The gospel is like this. You know, <clears throat> great... <clears throat> I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> i got to finish the uh, road to Emmaus. And then he reveals himself to those two guys... And then when he leaves, they said, did not our hearts burn within us? Have you ever had a burning in your heart from having read the Bible? I have. As he talked with us in the way and revealed himself to us in the breaking of the bread. Well, <clears throat> back to Tolkien. We have this uh, story of uh, Sleeping Beauty. The princess. The princess who is seduced by the wicked witch Maleficent drinks the evil potion and is put into a death-like sleep. Nothing is able to awaken her. The witches and the sorcerers and uh, <clears throat> uh, the specialists in uh, science come into the, into the chapel of gloom and death and try to awaken the princess, but no one can wake her up. And, <clears throat> and then it's Good Friday in the castle of gloom and death. But during the night, from outside the castle, into the castle of gloom, comes a prince who plants a kiss on the cheek of the sleeping princess, and she wakes up. 
And then there is a great celebration as the citizens of the kingdom are summoned uh, to the castle for a great celebration because it's Easter morning in the castle. But it's just a story. It touches our heartstrings, and we wish it were real. Then there's the story of Pinocchio. Same thing. Pinocchio, a wooden boy carved by Geppetto because he longs to have a son. And then the great evil whale, Monstro, swallows the little boy, sneezes him up on the shore, broken, and Geppetto carries him back, broken, to his house and grieves at his bedside and his good Friday in the <clears throat> Geppetto's house. But then during the night, an angelic <clears throat> visitor comes and awakens the boy, and he's no longer a wooden boy. He's a real, living, walking, talking son. And it's Easter morning in Geppetto's house. But it's just a story. But Tolkien says in the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything we longed for and hoped and wished in those folk stories breaks into history and becomes reality, God's new catastrophe. The cross has the power to change lives. Several years ago, I... Uh, was at a, a conference in St. Louis, Missouri. It was a conference of um, um, <clears throat> university and college administrators. And the evening service, we had a banquet and we had an evening speaker. The evening speaker that evening was the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. I'll never forget it. He said, this last week at Asbury at the seminary, something happened that our students would not have to put down on their calendar because as long as they lived, they would never forget this last week. He said, we had a speaker in our seminary chapel from Romania. He was a Christian pastor who had been arrested by the communists and had for eight months been interrogated day and night, day after day for eight long months, tortured and interrogated. And he said, it came to the place where he said, I can't take anymore. He was just ready to cave in. And he said, I heard a voice say, read. And he said, I thought that was stupid. They had burned all my books. They burned all the pastor's books. But they left him one book, a book by E. Stanley Jones, entitled um, <clears throat> Abundant Living. And he started reading it. And he came across a chapter entitled, Life in the Cross. And it described how Jesus took all the pain and suffering and humiliation of the world on his shoulders and bore it to Calvary. And he sensed a new energy after reading that chapter. And he said, I went before my captives the next day. And he said, the communist said to me, well, pastor, it looks like we're not going to be able to change you. We're just going to have to kill you. He said, I said to them, you have your ultimate weapon and I have mine. 
Your ultimate weapon is to kill me. But my ultimate weapon is to die. Because if you kill me, you will sprinkle my blood on tapes of my sermons that will be played over and over again all across Romania. And he said that night, the news report went through the underground. The pastor wants to be a martyr. But we're not stupid. We're not going to kill him. And they set him free. And he stepped out into the sunlight of freedom and he said the words of Jesus came to him. He who saves his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I don't know whether you've uh, received Christ as your Savior. You need to do that right now. You need not let another minute go by short of surrendering yourself, your life, into his hands. It's the only way out, folks. There's no other door out of this universe into that other one I talked about except through him. He shows the way. Take him as your Savior. You come forward if you've not and accept him today as your Savior. Be immersed. Let's stand together for our closing prayer.